Our scripture reading this morning comes from Mark's Gospel, Mark chapter 7, verses 24 to 30, which uh, is not always an easy passage to hear. So uh, strap in. Jesus left that place and went to the vicinity of Tyre. He entered a house and did not want anyone to know it, yet he could not keep his presence secret. In fact, as soon as she heard about him, a woman whose little daughter was possessed by an evil spirit came and fell at his feet. The woman was a Greek, born in Syrian Phoenicia. She begged Jesus to drive the demon out of her daughter. First let the children eat all they want, he told her, for it is not right to take the children's bread and toss it to the dogs. Lord, she replied, even the dogs under the table eat the children's crumbs. Then he told her, for such a reply you may go. The demon has left your daughter. She went home and found her child lying on the bed, the demon gone. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. We live in a time of great change. This week is a week of great change. The stuff that may have escaped us, uh, the economy will change with the adoption of the Trans-Pacific Partnership, the largest the largest free market in the world, created and none of us know it. Our foreign policy is about to change. There will be a treaty with our enemies in Iran about nuclear power and nuclear weapons. Our health care has changed forever. As the Supreme Court ruled on King versus Burrell. Our understanding of human rights and marriage has changed forever in this country. Even our view of history has changed forever. No longer can we hoist the stars and bars of the Confederacy and simply pretend that that's a cultural symbol. The world has changed just this week. It's changed with such rapidity that we can't even begin to get our heads around it. And whether you agree with those changes or not is not my point this morning. It's that the world changes. The world changes. Changes all around us. And for us, people of faith, the call to deal with that change is different. We have lived in a world for 1,700 years that has assumed that Christians have power and prerogatives that are different than everyone else's. We've called it Christendom. And it took no bigger a voice than Time Magazine this week to declare that for Americans, Christendom is dead. Now, we can respond to that in one of two ways. We can say, oh, it's terrible for us. 
And it may be, there may be negative repercussions to the end of Christendom. We, we are no longer at the center of society. The, the, the culture no longer pays attention to the church first in its views. We've lived in California. We, we know what that's like. But we can also turn that on its head and say, this is a great day for the church because we are out from under needing to support the culture, needing to support the state, needing to... We can, we can live and work and be at the margins where people are who need good news. Our missional proposition as the church has, has for 1,700 years been, come to us and we will fix you. My very first effort in evangelistic work was with Campus Crusade in the I Found It campaign. Does anybody remember the I Found It campaign? Yes, I see those hands. And man, I had a bumper sticker on my car and I worked the phones and I talked to people and I prayed with people. And a few years ago, I ran across a doctoral dissertation that evaluated that national campaign to call people to Jesus. It resulted in, actually, in the period of time from the rollout of I Found It until Campus Crusade pulled the plug on it, Church attendance in the United States, wait for it, declined. Ultimately, I found it had very little effect on our lives. We live in a post-Christendom era, for better or worse. I mean, we can argue about that till the cows come home, but the truth of the matter is, Post-Christendom is here. We've inherited it. How will we face it as the church? Curiously enough, this passage, as, as confusing and difficult as it is, is a passage that helps us. Jesus is trying throughout Mark 7 to do two things. <clears throat> the first thing he's trying to do is create change by breaking down barriers. He is at work breaking down barriers all through this passage. But he's also dealing with hard-headed Pharisees and dull-minded disciples. And so Jesus is also trying to get some rest. And he's not doing so well at that. He keeps, he keeps trying to retreat. First, he's in town and he's trying to get some rest and people keep coming to him. So they head off across the lake. And that doesn't work. And so now Jesus, when we pick up the story in verse 24, he goes to Tyre, a seacoast town where there are more Gentiles than Jews. It's out of greater Israel. It's out of greater Palestine. It's actually today part of Lebanon. It's, it's foreign country. Jesus, Jesus had to take a foreign trip. He had to go to Tijuana to get away. 
or to Vancouver or wherever. He needed rest. And then we run into this story. Now, I, I use Madison, the church mascot, my, my little puppy, to, to communicate. And, and Becky has got her, her pup here too, to communicate what Jesus is trying to talk about in this passage. Because we have, for 400 years, since King James' version of the Bible came out, we have, we have struggled with this passage. This is a difficult passage to read in English, especially in light of, of uh, Western post-modernity and post-Christendom. So Jesus is seeking some breathing room, and a family crisis hits his, hits his inbox just as soon as he settles in. I mean, Jesus hasn't even had time to unpack the shaving kit before there's a knock at the door, and here's a local woman saying, my daughter's got an evil spirit. Can Jesus fix it? Can Jesus heal my little girl? Now this woman had three strikes against her in the eyes of a good Orthodox Jew. First of all, she was a woman. So wrong gender. Secondly, she was Greek, wrong ethnicity. And third, she was Syrophoenician, which basically means she came from Lebanon. And that was the country that Jezebel came from. Back in the Old Testament, Ahab's wife, who wreaked such havoc. In short, it was the wrong history to have. This was a pagan, Gentile woman asking for assistance from an Orthodox Jewish rabbi. This does not compute. This does not happen. No self-respecting rabbinical leader in first century Palestinian Judaism would countenance a conversation with such a person. It just wasn't done. It wasn't toward. It wasn't ethical. It wasn't responsible. It wasn't the way we did things. And Jesus responds to her in a very curious way. He says, first, let the children eat all they want. For it is not right to take the children's bread and toss it to the dogs. Now there are three pieces to this, to this response by Jesus that we need to deconstruct. And the first is when he says, first. Jesus is implying a sense of priority. Jesus is saying that his mission is not just to go from town to village all over wherever he is and fix people. His mission is not just to heal the sick and help people recover their sight. And those are means to a greater end, Jesus is saying. And that greater end is to create a people a people who are in covenant with God, a people who are part of God's mission in the world. The Syrophoenician woman doesn't quite fit that paradigm because Jesus is trying to communicate to his Jewish brothers and sisters that they have been chosen by God to be this people of mission to the world, a light to the Gentiles. 
And Jesus is saying, oh, my focus has got to be here. This is what I'm trying to concentrate on. I'm trying to deal with this and I'm trying to get some rest here so I can go back to that. It isn't racism or ritual uncleanliness or paganism. It's, it's Jesus with a sense of doing first things first. And then he compares her, in essence, to, to a dog. And we read that as 21st century English-speaking postmodern Westerners and saying, is, is Jesus using a word that begins with B and rhymes with rich? Is, is, Jesus, is Jesus a misogynist here? What, what is he saying? What is he saying? It's not right to take the children's bread and toss it to the dogs. Well, we do a terrible job in translation of this verse because the word here that almost every modern translation translates dog is actually a diminutive word for dogs. It's puppy. It's, it's Madison. It's not a pack wolf. It's not a bunch of, it's not a dog out in the alley ready to snarl and tear you apart. It's, it's a dog that at worst is going to lick you to death. Jesus is saying, my, my mission is to these children that God has, has chosen as his missionaries in the world. And, and then it's to the rest of the household. These, this is, this brood of beautiful puppies. Jesus is speaking words of, of kindness here. And, and I know it's hard for us to hear it because since the King James Version came out, we've translated this as harshly as possible in the English. But it simply doesn't bear up. The word is the diminutive for dog. The word is puppy. Happiness is a warm puppy. Jesus is not misogynistic in this passage. He's saying, God's called me to a two-part mission. To bring the people of Israel back into covenant relationship and then to extend, and then to extend it to the world. It's also curious that Jesus uses bread as an image here. Having just fed 5,000 people, having, having just performed that miracle of feeding, Jesus will also, in Mark's Gospel, do it a second time in chapter 8. It's the only Gospel where it happens twice. And one wonders if Mark is trying to tell a story here of here Jesus is feeding his people who he's called to be in covenant with and also feeding the rest of the world. There isn't some analogy there that, that we need to understand. Now the woman hears this, and again, we misread 
how she replies. We, we think of this reply as sort of somewhere on a continuum between shrill and, and sobbing. But it isn't. This woman is, is, is replying to Jesus in kind with, with, with a witty repartee that, that Jesus wouldn't normally run up against in, in, a, in a village life in Nazareth. He, he lays this analogy out. My mission is to Israel. And then it will be to the rest of the world. Give me a minute. And, and the woman's response is essentially three words. In the Greek, non kurie kai. Yes, Lord, yet. First three words of her reply in the Greek. We miss part of it in the way we translate it. We, verse 28, Lord, she replied, even the dogs under the table eat the children's crumbs. What she's doing, though, and what we miss in the translation is she's agreeing with Jesus. Yes, Lord, none. I, I agree with you. You're right. There is, there is a two-part mission to what you're doing in the world. I accept that. You're also Lord, Courier. Only twice in Mark's Gospel is Jesus referred to as either Lord or God's Son, both times by Gentiles. This is the only time in Mark's Gospel that he is referred to as Lord. And it's by a Gentile woman. Yes, Lord, I understand who you are. I understand what you're about. And yet, Kai, this conjunctive preposition in the Greek that Mark seems to be, it's Mark's favorite word. It's, it's, in, it's in Mark's Gospel over a hundred times. And it's, it's a word that, that, basically, that, 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 that basically says, I understand what you're about, but I'm not trying to get a seat at the table with Israel. I just need your help with my little girl who's possessed by a demon. And Jesus in that moment goes, you're right. You're absolutely right. Go home. She's fine. For such a reply, go home. The demon has left your daughter. Grace and God's mission prevail. The woman went home and found her child lying on the bed and the demon gone. The woman wasn't saying, Jesus, make me part of your master plan. Jesus, make me part of your kingdom's effort. It was, to use the country western song that was popular a few years ago, Jesus, take the wheel. I don't know what else to do. I just need help right now. And Jesus says, okay, right answer. Go home, your daughter's fine. This story calls us not to 
focus on the deliverance. The story is not really about the deliverance of this little girl. The story is about the persistent faith of this woman, of her tenacity, of her wittiness, of her persistence, of her willingness to go toe-to-toe with a Jewish rabbi who she thought had something to offer. And it says a word to us about our faith. We get so passive with Jesus. Oh, Jesus, I'd really like you to fix my life if it's your will. Could you please? Instead of saying, this is what I need, Lord. This is... This is what I need. I need you to speak into my life. I need you to challenge me. I need you to remind me of your priorities. I need you to tell me what it is you want to accomplish, Lord. Yes, Lord, yet. Yes, Lord, and here's what I need. We get really passive in our faith. I think in part because we we function... Monday through Saturday as atheists. We figure it's up to us. We got to figure it out. Jesus put us on, God put us on this world with a brain. We can figure it out by ourselves. Yes, and Jesus would like us to be in conversation with him about our lives, about the direction we want to go, about our needs. And so this story is about the woman's persistence in that effort. And so in that persistence, it reminds us that we are called to three things. We are called, we are called first to fulfill Christ's mission, not ours. This woman understood, even in asking for the deliverance of her daughter, that, that Jesus had a mission that Jesus had a purpose that was larger than her. She acknowledges it. Non curie kai. Yes, Lord, and. She acknowledges that Jesus' mission is important. She doesn't feel put down by Jesus saying, I must first feed the children and then, and then the pups. She gets it. And she recognizes that that Jesus calls us to fulfill his mission, not ours. Secondly, we're called to a persistent faith in Christ. Not the hothouse version, but persistence. And the truth be told, persistence gets a bum rap in society because we think persistence is about putting our nose to the grindstone and working ourselves into an early grave. That, that, that persistence is if I work really, really hard, good things will happen to me. You know, I, I look around and I look at my own life and I just know that's not true. I know how hard some of you have worked only to find disappointment at the end of that rainbow. It's been true in my life too. I, I spent my kids elementary and middle school years working 14-hour days in Pasadena for the cause of the kingdom. How'd that turn out? Eh, kind of so-so. 
I missed a lot of good stuff because I was being persistent for the kingdom. Persistence demands from us playfulness. Real persistence demands for us to have a sense of humor, demands for us, like the Syrophoenician woman, to be witty, demands for us to play. And that's why the persistence of stories like Le Pelican and St. Francis Primary School in Bangladesh and You're Invited are so important for us because they remind us that we learn to be persistent by playing. There is no course, no, no outline, no, no syllabus on persistence. We learn to be persistent by getting out and making the mud pies until they're right. By getting out and shooting hoops until the ball goes in. By playing. And as a church, we can often become so serious about our faith, so burdened by our discipleship, that we forget we serve a laughing Jesus who loved to go to parties and who enjoyed the presence of his company even when he was tired and his disciples were at their worst. He still enjoyed their presence. We are called to a persistent playfulness in our faith because that's going to have the long-term possibilities in our lives. And we're called to remember that it's Jesus and not his miracles that are at the center. This woman came to Jesus just wanting some relief for, his, for her daughter. Just wanting her daughter made well. Nothing else really mattered. She didn't leave with just that. She left with a whole new appreciation for who Jesus is. She left not just with a healed daughter, but with a Lord for her life. Non curie kai. Yes, Lord, and. She didn't just leave with a good experience with a wonder worker that she could take a selfie with and post on Facebook and say, hey, Jesus did a wonderful thing in my life. She came away as a disciple, as a follower, acknowledging with a word no Jew uses in Mark's gospel, acknowledging Jesus as Lord. So for us this morning, some questions to think about. What does it mean for us to make disciples of all nations in an environment uh, where the Jesus way is a minority point of view? What, is it, what does it mean for us in post-Christendom when we are no longer at the center of society, when Christian values are no longer understood as the norm? What does it mean for us to make disciples of all nations? Maybe, maybe we're going to have to act like a pug and roll around in the grass upside down. Maybe we'll need to change our perspective about the world 
and see south as top instead of north as top. What are the empty boundaries that we need to abandon in favor of authentic relationship in order to fulfill God's mission? What are the meaningful markers we need to point us to the center, to Jesus? And how persistent are we prepared to become in sharing God's healing grace with everyone? How persistently playful are we prepared to be in order to share the good news with everyone? I would wish for our congregation that we would be known for two things in this community. First, that we would be known as a congregation that prays and that we are a congregation that plays, that we have fun together, that we delight in Jesus' presence and in each other's presence. And we are well on our way on that path, on those paths. Maybe we can play a little more and pray a little more. One more thing from uh, Tim Geddert's commentary on Mark. He writes, God's grace is not reserved for those who are scrupulous about religious ceremonies. Mark 7, 1-13. Nor is God's grace reserved for those who avoid all the vices flowing from a defiled and defiling heart. 7, 14-23. God's grace is for those who are open to receive it and know they are undeserving. The needy Gentile woman moved the heart of Jesus by her open heart, her empty hands, and her daring confidence that whatever Jesus would give her would be enough. Jesus is ready to give each and every one of us what we need. Not, not a whole lot more. That's, that's the biblical story from from, from the manna in the wilderness to Jesus with the Syrophoenician woman. Jesus doesn't open up the storehouse and say, here it is, come take whatever you want. He gives us what we need in the moment. May it be enough. Let's pray. Teach us, Lord, to be persistent in our playfulness with you and with this changing world around us. It would be so easy for us to be upset, angry, concerned by some of the changes in our world. Teach us to respond by being playful and persistent that you are Lord and that you will bring us enough. Amen.